Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm your co-host, as always, Aaron Cameron. With me is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live as part of our conference series today. We're at the Canadian Investment Apartment Conference. Today, our guest is a gentleman by the name of Henry Morton, who is the president of Campus Suites. And so our topic today is going to be student housing or co-living or senior. We were talking off air about how it's really not just student housing. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Henry, before we go there, why don't you start with, you know, how did you end up doing what you're doing today? Great. So my company basically does development and at this point, asset management of primarily student housing, mixed use, oriented mixed use communities. So we started off about 20 years ago in the United States building a, I was asked to come in to to help with a, I can't have to be nice, apparently a failed condo deal (laughs) in Orlando, Florida. And it was right after 1989. So as you can figure out, I've been around for a little while. And the project was completely underwater. And I had just finished business school, just done a year of international strategy consulting. Came out and was asked to help with this project. Over the course of time, we built almost 1,500 apartments and left room for another 600 in the same gated community and just outside of it. Over the course of this development, we had a management company and somebody came to us and said, listen, I know your manager. Would you consider managing a student housing project for us? This is in 1989. Um, or around that time. Yeah, Three, four years later. But, but times were still good, I believe, then, right? So, but what did the previous well, they, owner done wrong? Well, 89, you guys are a little younger than I am, just for everyone who doesn't know them, but you're a little younger than I am. And so 89, you know, we started seeing in the States, you you were, and just before that, 18, 20% interest rates. So it was pretty common for projects to be failing all over the place. But we started with this project and it was a great location. And somebody came and said, would you manage this project for us? And I said, we know nothing about student housing. But he said, I know your manager. I've seen what you've done here. Would you consider doing it? So we asset and property managed their development literally from concept through sale. We did two of those for them. And then we sold this large project in Orlando, closed our doors one day, opened them the next day in downtown Orlando and and had a project in Tallahassee that was available to us. And we started that project immediately. And we built through the United States. We built probably around 12,000 beds Mm. in the States and property managed, but another 4,000 on top of that, perhaps. And then we won a large RFP in Toronto at York University to build 2,200 beds on campus. And that brought me back to Toronto, even though I'd always lived here, we were corporately in the States. And we've been building in Canada exclusively ever since, having sold everything in the States over, what was over that, years. Uh, what year was that York University RFP? We won that nine years ago. Okay. And it took York about four or five years to actually give us the official okie-dokie to go forward. Is it done now? We finished the first 812 beds. We did that two years ago. And we are starting the next 700 beds in, on May the 1st, hopefully. And then we'll have a third phase that we can knock out. And, then, and what other there. projects do you kind of have on yeah. the go? Or What's the total we, empire look like right now? Yeah, exactly. Well, we yeah. sold, we're, I literally have started from scratch. I mean, in many respects. So we built all these beds. We also did a hotel conversion in Montreal. We did a hotel conversion in Ottawa with U.S. Hotel conversion US to, US student, partners, to, to student, student housing. housing. Yep. And then I literally started from scratch again, reinvented ourselves in Canada, reinvented ourselves with what is necessary to build again in Canada. And so we started off with York University. We're currently doing 
512 beds in Calgary with 20,000 square feet of medical office and 8,000 square feet of commercial. And in Winnipeg, we're doing 570 beds there with another 8,000 square feet of commercial. Those are, the, those are ones that are, that the, are currently under construction. The one in Calgary, why, why the medical office? We happen to be just down the road from Foothills Hospital, largest hospital in the city, and a little bit further down the road from Children's Hospital, and there's a brand new cancer center that's being built right so beside Foothills. So there was Foothills. demand for it. Huge demand. You, were you asked by the city to do that, or did you just identify that that's an opportunity? No, we identified it as an opportunity. So is that an asset class that you're familiar with already, or is this going to be a, a new... The medical office? Yeah. New, brand new. But, you know, we've done commercial spaces around the country, wherever we've built student housing or the mixed-use communities. They often have a commercial component to it. But no, the the medical office space is actually is brand new to us. So it's just as sometimes retail can eat your lunch. I'm hoping this won't. Uh, (laughs) And it's eating your lunch. It's not that it's, it's, it's just everyone has unique demands. Everyone has unique, everyone has uniqueness to them and in commercial. And I suspect that the medical will be similar, but we've learned a lot over the last many years and we're, we're all ready for it. So, so can we kind of set the... You set the stage for just the, the current environment of student housing and maybe start with what it was like when you entered it and kind of how it's evolved. I mean, in my mind, student housing is one of those interesting asset classes that most, for one, most people aren't that familiar with it. And it seems to have been rapidly changing. It's not that nearly the same as it was five years ago, 10 or 20 years ago. It, you know, in my mind, you know, I think of student housing and it's concrete, cold, really small units with these flat little mattresses. And it's, it's kind of not a fun place to be, but you're stuck there because you're 19. And that's or, the only or place chopped up houses in yeah, uh, student ghettos. So, or, so maybe talk sure. about where it was when you entered and then how it's evolved and then maybe today and where it's going in the future. And for reference sake, we've never done an episode in student housing. So you're-, you're I just explained everything I knew about student housing. <laughs> so it's interesting. My wife has barked at me for 10 years. Why didn't I do student housing in Canada? And I don't think, you know, to your point that it was actually ready for some of the student housing that was done in the States in this marketplace up until a number of years ago. So, so people would talk about Canada's 10 years behind. And, and I agree with the small portion of that, that individual projects may be 10 years behind, um, individual cities may be 10 years behind, but in reality, the market will never actually catch that of the United States because we don't have enough capital chasing. We don't have enough information flow. We don't have enough, so the capital markets aren't present. It's an interesting challenge to educate. And sometimes you want to educate and sometimes you don't. You want to leave people to make their own mistakes oftentimes. But what's happened in Canada was, you know, people often refer to Waterloo as, as the student housing mecca at this point, and it probably is. It took many years. Well, you're a student housing ghetto now. Just it, There's too much. I mean, well, the, te- the, correct the, me if I'm wrong. At least the, that's the Absolutely. That's the I, haven't, I haven't ever wanted to go to Waterloo because it's always had thousands and thousands of beds on the drawing board. Even today, they have still, I think it's another 2,500 or 3,000 beds that are in the city entitlement process. So it gets to be a little crazy and people, and you often wonder what happens when they go from underserved to overdeveloped and which happens in places like Waterloo fairly quickly. And it happened in a lot of places in the United States. There's a tremendous amount of capital in the United States chasing projects, both capital and, and debt. And so people were building often for fees without consideration to what the overall profitability would be of these projects. And we see that sometimes happening in places like Waterloo, I think. But in Canada, you know, wherever we've really been building, we are often the only person in town doing what we do, which is class A, fully tricked out student housing, a programmatic lifestyle. 
So we were really the first in Montreal that made a go of it. We were really the first in Ottawa that made a go of it. And there are others that are there now. Can you define tricked out? Fully amenitized, fully technology laden, 24-hour management, on-site management, programmatic living, which is everything from events, nonstop events to how do you get involved in the community? So do you have like almost like a resident advisor that's that's there that's managing events? Maybe they're your staff, but if you think about like on campus experiences, like if you've you know your first year university, you know, your experience is that you've got somebody that sits sleeps on your floor with you that is your guide for the year. Like I'm sure it's not that involved, but you're at least trying to to replicate some of that experience where there's constant activities and constant sort of community right. building. It's sometimes more involved because in, on the resident, on the if you're in the residence, you're you've literally come from mom and dad's home, and you're coming, and this is your first experience out of the home usually. So we tend to often gravitate, or have the first or second year and above gravitate to us. We actually were very happy having first year students go into residence. I firmly believe that's where they belong. That's the right place for them because the schools are really well suited to looking after them in that regard. And so, so every so in our case, the community assistants are people who are your first point of contact, but they also do the leasing for us. They are the ones who help with our resident events. They are the ones who, you know, at our project at York University, the aforementioned eight hundred twelve bed project. You know, they have. We had things like the taste of the quad. So we, as well as having kitchenettes or kitchens in every unit, we also have 10 community kitchens. So we had every country, we had 10 countries get a, an amount of money and they were able to, and they took, each one took over a kitchen and they introduced our residents to their countries. Which, flavors and, and flavors and we yeah. have Cinco de Mayo days we have Game of Thrones nights we have you name it we've probably wrapped some event around it and it's not just parties it's all about building community that's my whole gig is it's we build community it's not parties parties are more first year things where they're and then they get it out of the system it's all about building community and that's how you get people engaged that is so much more than my uh my second year apartment offered. There it was just concrete walls and a key, and that was it. The leaps and bounds that student housing has made in the last, you know, even 15 years. Anecdotally, it's, it's amazing, impressive. There's actually a conference run by Derek Lobo, and they were, mm-hmm. they were talking about, some American groups were up talking about how, yeah, they're 15 years ahead of us, and that's why they want to come to this market. And they're talking about amenity wars. The most outrageous one I heard down there was a a lazy pool and an outdoor movie screen so mm-hmm. you could float around and watch a movie. I know that uh, we're behind the American curve, but do you ever see that kind of levels of amenities coming to some of the suites that you run? So I've built some of those. Okay. Not, necessarily <laughs> the lazy, not necessarily the lazy pool, but, but we, similar extravagances. But oh, the, the amenity inflation has been enormous in the States. And the funny thing is, is people, people don't use them all. I mean, they look at the pool. Oftentimes people look at pools and they go, oh, I love the pool. But what they really want is they want a great deck around the pool. They actually don't want the pool. They, they rarely go in the pool. They use climbing walls. They have, you know, massive movie theaters. They have different huge amenities. But to me, I don't want to put in an amenity unless someone's going to use it. And if I'm going to put in an amenity, I want to do it well. So we have large gyms. My philosophy is that if you, once a student is in our, a resident is within our building, I want to always keep them in our building. I don't want them hitting the other parts of the campus or other businesses to satisfy their needs. So whether it's large study rooms or 
congregating rooms or, or just like coffee shops and restaurants coffee shops, and things restaurants like that. you name it i want once they're in our building i want to keep them in our building because that's how again we build community so that conference or those conferences i've spoken at them a number of times i think i had two panels i was lucky enough to be on and it's interesting because the U.S. expectation of what students want, I think, is very different than what Canadians have as an expectation for what students want. You know, in the States, they would have, if you don't have in-suite washer-dryers, you're thought of as second-class living. Well, here, I don't think students or residents, for the most part, expect that. They're very happy if they can build a community-oriented laundry room. So it goes from being a capital expense and an operating expense, actually, to an income generator for a building. So it and, changes and, and the aligns with your material. philosophy of building community. Absolutely. Because if you do it properly, you can have people doing things around those laundry machines. And, you know, in our case with the laundry machines, you know, you ping the machine to find out if it's empty. It pings you back to say, your load is done. Please come get it. So you, it's, it's easy. And I don't, and so you've changed the dynamics in the States. You would have these massive pools. You would have massive, climbing walls you'd have extravagances and i you know when we when we survey our residents they sort of suggest that they're unhappy with some of those things they see them as a true extravagance that really isn't necessary similar to a canadian experience you know canadians are much more tempered in many respects and you see that in their expectations in the expectations of how they deal with us. And it's great because it means that we can really think about what's best for them as opposed to what's best for the sale process. And if we do that properly, we will get everything that we want, regardless. I have two questions. So I'll start with this because I think it's more in line. Before we move off to maybe some other sort of concepts, what's your, do you have a philosophy on proper sweet mix, proper sweet structure? There is that sort of, we were talking off air about five bedrooms and four bedrooms and two bedrooms. And what, what makes the most amount of sense, do you think? Or what are the students attracted to the most? So I've never built a five bedroom unit and I have no intention of ever building a five bedroom unit. I've never built anything less than two bedrooms per washroom. And in places where we have, where we foresee a fair amount of competition, or as we move towards more of a co-living model, we're starting to do much more bed bath parody one-to-one which is what we always did in the states that was always the model that everyone's done in the and states and is that an attraction like do, do will students choose one suite over another because they don't have to share their washroom wouldn't you if you were that age? well I just I don't know well, I, 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 yes I mean yes, we're answers, always yes. two to one now at the very worst the five twos I really don't know how to do it my kids did five twos in meaning in, five bedrooms with two, two bathrooms, bathrooms yeah. or six twos in the, if they're in houses and you know people have ways always of working that out but you know privacy in theory gets you higher rent for each of the bedrooms in those units. So so unless so unless we found that there's a a future there's a lot of competition coming in the future, you know, I'd rather do the two ones. It's a nice model. It works in Canada. It doesn't work in the states of the high-end projects. But as I said, as we move to different projects here in Canada and different locations, we're doing a little bit more of a of a hybrid of those two to one ratios, regardless of the number of units and the one ones. But you know, you asked about unit mix. And so Taking aside those five or six bedroom units, you know, one of the reasons why we also don't do some of those things and do a building exclusively of those is that it significantly ratchets up your risk. You know, you're making an assumption that every single person in a market will like being in a four bedroom unit. That's just not the case. What it also does, it doesn't provide different price points for people. So we look at price points. We look at 
preferred living environments. You know, we also look at, we also have a, a, a small percentage of rooms that are, that are shared units where it's two kids in one bedroom, but their units are like one and a half times a one bedroom unit because certain cultures like to live together, but as well, it's a price point to enter into our buildings and we can get a good utilization of rent per square foot that makes it worth our while. Without using dollars, but maybe maybe that's the only way you can do it. What is the premium for having a the 2-1 or a 1-1 one, one versus a 4-2 or something like that? And, and the company amenities. And yeah, like, I, I, I would think from an affordability perspective, okay, shoot, I'll spend four years living in a four-bedroom with two bathrooms to save myself 200 bucks a month or 300 bucks a month. Is it that significant? What is the delta? Well, we average on all of our projects around the country, we average about $1,000 a month per bed on a 12-month lease. That includes your internet, that includes your hydro, it does not include water, it does not include your lights and plugs. We don't have cable TV in any of our buildings. Streaming's the, the new thing anyway. Streaming is the only thing. Yeah. So the, the difference between the shared units and the, the exclusive one-bedroom units could be as much as $400 a month. But if you look at where we are compared to the market, which is our biggest, our biggest competitor, our biggest concern, is that you know, if you look at a one-bedroom apartment in Toronto at a place near Jane and Finch, for example, you're still, by the time you take your rent and your parking and your transit pass and your hydro, your cable, your phone if you want one, but nobody really does, and you add it all together, you're probably in excess of $1,000 or $1,100 at Jane and Finch. And we're 1250 on campus. And just for reference sake, Jane and Finch is a uh, not so nice area directly adjacent to York University. Correct. Yeah. But if you, but you know, in Canada, if you have a kid who played hockey, you know, that would be considered one of the, what was the phrase you used? One of the not so nice not areas. Not so nice. You know, if you were <laughs> very diplomatic. But, but, but in Canada, that not so nice area, everybody who has a kid who played hockey played at Jane and Finch in the Northwest quadrant. And you were there at night. Well, in the States, you wouldn't take that equivalent location and be caught any time of the day, never mind. I remember night. going to the McDonald's after hockey at 11 o'clock at night, rolling through that the retail plaza. I mean, you don't worry too much about it, right? Like, Not in Canada, yeah. but in the States, you wouldn't even be, you wouldn't be caught there. Well, what's fascinating is that, so that's an area that, you know, what we might call it not so nice. The equivalent of the States is don't go near it ever, but people will live there and they won't live in that same location in the States. But the Delta is maybe a hundred or $150 a month to be right on campus. And that's what we find is the delta in a lot of cases. So and then it's not I'm, significant. I'll put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing the, the sense of community that you are fostering is worth something as well versus being in that apartment at Jane and Finch where you don't have any of those improved amenities nor any of the activities that you're offering. So there's, there is a premium that must be paid to have access to that stuff. Well, no one else has, unless you've designed your building to be programmatic lifestyle, purpose-built community, you can't, it's tough to do it. So, you know, we have furniture in all of our units. They come fully furnished, which is another feature that you would pay for if you lived elsewhere. And, and no, you can't get that in other locations. You can't find that programmatic lifestyle. So we have a really simple philosophy, which is, as we, like we keep talking about, we keep using the word community. Well, if we build community, we build retention. People want to stay there. We build retention. We build recruitment. People want to live there. It seems like the best place to be. So you're, if, you're getting year two, three, and four out of this. Well, year. and that leads me yeah. to that. Absolutely. Well, no, but if you do that, what you also get is you get all your rents because it's people are finding it attractive. And if you get your rents, what you know, quality begets care. 
And so if you get that care, your R&M costs are lower, your marketing costs are lower. So by sticking to that building community business, you get everything you want as a developer that's, owner. That's an important note because one of the challenges with student housing is your wear and tear is typically greater, or at least notionally, that's what that's what people believe. <laughs> Can you tell us one horror story about the worst? <laughs> or or are you, is you're shaking your head? So maybe that's not the case. Maybe that's just a myth. It's a myth because you know quality begets care, crap begets destruction. You know, people leave it, you know, poorly. They don't, if you, you know, imagine in your own house, you will not do some things in your own house because it's A, yours, B, it's well done. And it, it becomes part of your DNA, part of your own personal fabric. You're proud to live there. So we found that we have never really had serious destruction in Canada. By the way, in the States, you know, I had, I built a project near the University of Arizona, or sorry, Arizona State, and the kids used to make a game out of running down the halls and whacking the exit signs off the walls with baseball bats. I have never heard of things like that in Canada. I've never heard of the destruction in Canada, like what they do in the States as well. You know, what do we have in Canada? I've had incidental issues. Like I've had little fires where things happen. I've had, I had a girl try to install a bidet on her own and she flooded the units below her. But you know, those are incidental <laughs> issues, but I have not yet. And in fact, our latest turns were, we kind of broke some records ourselves for how little damage we had in our units. So you mentioned crap begetting crap. As Canada ramps up with more and more of these tricked out community-driven campus suites, will the chopped up houses of the previous generation, is that becoming obsolete or is demand still going to fill them? So I had kids, I had two of my kids go through the Queen's Ghetto. And I think it's partially a rite of passage to go into some of those. But Queen's, to its great credit, you know, actually has become certifying houses because they were finding that those chopped up also to be read as non-code compliant housing houses were you know they're problematic they're scary in fact and so a number of years ago in Oshawa Ontario which is half an hour from Toronto and has you know one of the real success stories for universities in the country which is University of Ontario Institute of Technology you know they had a community that was built near near the university and it became chopped up, as you talked about. And, and the city of Oshawa went to the federal government and went to the Supreme Court and asked for the right to actually go into these houses, inspect them, and, and either fine or demand them to be converted back. And they won that ruling. And so cities are going through and they're saying, now, how do we deal with these issues? And how do we it's deal with it? It's not safe. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's a health safe. and safety issue. It's a big health and safety issue. So in Toronto, for example, near York University, we have we don't necessarily have city enough city inspectors, but what we do have is we have the fire department. So the fire department is going in under a code compliance basis and doing this. So I tell York University and I tell a lot of others the story for when I went to, I built in a place called Oxford, Ohio, and we, we came into town looking to build and I'm meeting with some partners and I'm and we had just come in, and my numbers are wrong, but the concept is right. And so there was a house downtown chopped up. It was originally zoned for four occupants. I believe there were eight leases that had been written on that house at that time. And when the fire broke out in the middle of the night, I think there were 14 kids living there and 11 got out. So three died. I am never going to call a parent and say, I have some really bad news for you because I didn't do my job. And, you know, other, you know, there's other projects we know of that have had these issues also. 
And fire safety is, you know, my kids, when they moved into these, some of these houses in Queens, I had one criteria, one non-negotiable. And my only non-negotiable was you had to have a bedroom window. And why? Because they had to have a means of egress in the event of a fire. That was my only non-negotiable. Everything else we could deal with. <laughs> but that's a real thing. Well, good, this is good, good advice for any parents with kids going off to university. Well, it does raise the point, too, that in a lot of cases, the parents are the ones paying the rent. And so if there's a premium for safety, they'll happily pay it. They will. But what's interesting also, you know, half of our residents in each of our markets have been international students. And they're not, they do not like this, the chopped up houses. That is not their thing. They like to be proximate or pedestrian to campus. And they like to have, they like to have modern lifestyle. They like to have modern life safety. That's very important to them. And so, so we're also appealing to those tenants because they are uh, very important to us. You can tell by the noise here that the uh, the break has started. What Maybe noise? Was, what are you talking about? We'll it's ask, not noisy uh, in here. One more question. And how do you finance these things? So it's interesting because financing is our, in our sector is a real challenge. There are There's really one major bank, a couple secondary banks, and a number of mortgage lenders who are participating in the business. So what is also a problem of having a niche business, which is what mine is, is that there are, if something happens to one of our, let's say, competitors, it ripples through the industry. If someone delivers late or delivers a project that doesn't work or, or they have had it go back to the lender, you know, all of a sudden everyone gets skittish and financing can be very challenging in our sector. You know, before we started, we talked a little bit about Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation financing which while they, in theory, do student housing, you know, historically they don't actually deliver in that regard. But in certain cities like Waterloo, Ontario, they, they have a lot of, you know, the mortgage lenders are the dominant lenders in those markets because the, the SCED banks aren't necessarily showing up there because they think of those as a, as a little bit higher risk and they think of them as being over-delivered. But the mortgage lenders, who, who can also charge a little bit more for that risk, also look at it and say, what's our likelihood of, of loss? And they're comfortable with that likelihood of, or low likelihood of loss because there's usually equity on, there's equity on top of it. But financing in our sector is, is very challenging. And we're very lucky that we've been able to go to a couple of the banks and, and, and establish some very good relationships with them. But there's a place for everyone in those markets, in these markets, depending on the size of the project, but your bona fides, because there's not a lot of people who also have the bona fides in this industry in Canada because it's just not that well done. So it's a long-winded answer yeah. to the fact that it's a challenge. Yeah, well, my boss, who was our last guest, Jeremy Wedgbury, would be disappointed if I didn't mention that it's an asset class that First National is pushing very actively with a relationship with CMHC and, and, and acknowledging that that niche market is underserved and that there needs to be somebody sort of taking a, taking a lead and finding more creative ways to, to finance sure. them. sure, and First National has done a great job in that regard. But it is a, it is a challenge because like just like seniors housing before, for which First National and others, you know, ultimately it took them a long time to get comfortable with an operating business they're getting a little more comfortable with our student housing industry or co-living being an operating business and you know only good things will come from that but if they don't we're very happy with our little sector of the market and what we're able to hold on to but you know we're it's information flow is and capital markets never never really hurt especially in a small small country like Canada it's, it's tough. it is a small country there's only I did some research the other day and we there are only 30 universities in this country that have more than 10,000 undergraduate students 
most people know where all those universities are. I would bet that between the two of you could probably name, you know, 20 and 25 of them. There are a couple, there are five that, you know, even I have to think about, or seven or eight that I have to think about. I can't remember them all. But so as a result, everyone knows where they are and everyone knows where to build in this country. And so it's... There's it's no secrets. Ch- There's no hidden gems. Not like, not like in the States. I tell people, do you know where Grand Valley State University is? And they say... I don't even know what, I've never heard of it, don't know where it is. Well, I would tell them that that would be in Canada, the 16th largest university in the country. It's in Michigan. Well, there are hundreds of those in the States, hundreds and hundreds of those in the States. And so for that reason, everyone's got little lenders who will do anything in the States. Everyone's got little projects they can do in the States. In Canada, you're right, it's a small country, and the lenders are a big part of it, actually. And lenders want to see the project being within three blocks of the campus. So you're really talking about a very small you know, acreage where you can actually build. That is true. Pedestrian, pedestrian, pedestrian. <laughs> you know, before we wrap up, the last question I think and everybody's probably thinking this is, you know, from a geographical perspective, how does student housing get absorbed or how does it seen in different parts of the country because I think you're national wide, right? We are close. We have been, we're currently building in Winnipeg. We're currently building Calgary, as mentioned. We'll look anywhere across the country. I'm, I'm challenged to look in BC only because I've had experience in Arizona and other places where it's long travel, three hours, time zone difference. I find that on a, on a personal level as I've gotten older, a little bit more challenging. But we'll look across the country. But, you know, most places where we go, like in Winnipeg, we're the only student housing development in Winnipeg. And when we do our next phase, we, will, we may be the only student housing or programmatic project there for a generation. Calgary, there's really nobody else. Saskatchewan, there's really no opportunities. Ontario has a lot of different opportunities and people are starting to look at them and recognize some of them. I'm not sure, you know, Quebec, well, people think of that as a bit of the mecca of the country, the second highest concentration of students in North America. It's different and I'm not sure that they are, it's quite the market that everyone always thinks it is. In the Maritimes, you know, there's really only one place we love to think about, which is Halifax and other places are are challenging and that they're either local residents mostly or there's just no, no, no opportunity for what I do. But yeah, no, we look anywhere. We look with schools, we look privately, we look off campus. We want to always be pedestrian to campus. But the market is very different across the country. Is part of that just scale? Like for, to have the programmatic living and to, to do it efficiently, you have to have a certain size? We believe that it needs to be more than 400 beds just because you need to be able to pay for the amenities, pay for the management. So four to 500 beds for us is a really nice sweet spot because we're also trying to balance everything we do off against risk. You know, you don't want to be building 800 beds in a market that can only have 400. I've, I've done that before in Kentucky and it took us years to get to the surface. Well, out of that 30 universities with 10,000 students, you just eliminated three quarters of them, but just by, based on scale necessary to, to make your program work. Exactly. That's the, that's the problem. That's the problem. Henry, it's not very often we get to do a new asset class in the podcast, so thank you so much for coming on and yeah. talking about Thanks for I learned a lot this one. This was great. Yeah. And we want to thank First National for powering the, the podcast. We want to thank Informa for having us on at the Canadian Department Investment Conference. And we'll thank you again, Henry. Pleasure. Thanks, thank Henry. you so much. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.